0: Uh, today I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. And if I could ask everybody to go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word, God's word that would be great. I, I have to confess, I'm gonna be it's going to be tough for me not to make comments as I go through and read this. This is such a great passage, so I will withhold myself. All right, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, that is he, Jesus... your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and walk and go home. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. Oh, man, we'll try that again. Good morning. morning. That's much better. All right, I am really excited. This is my excited face. I'm really excited to be uh, preaching in Mark this morning. So we're going to be continuing our series in Mark, Mark chapter 2. And uh, I wanted to start this morning with, with a story. I like stories. Stories, I think, are great ways to learn. This is, a story. This, is a real, this is a true story, a real story. It's a true story. Um, there was a governor in Massachusetts a number of years ago. His name was Christian Herter. And Christian Herder ha- was finishing up his first term, and he was campaigning for his second. And he was going around doing what campaigners do, meeting with people, kissing babies, all the stuff. And uh, he left one morning, busy, busy day, meeting, meeting, meetings, running around, campaigning, and it came to the late afternoon, and he was famished, realized he didn't have a lunch. And uh, so he went to his next place, which was at a church, and there was a church barbecue. So he goes to the church, he just kind of sees they're uh, feeding some folks, so he just kind of gets in line. He's making his way down the line finally gets to the main event, the barbecue chicken, and the woman there hands him a piece of chicken on his plate, and then she moves on to the next, and he looks down at this piece of chicken and just thinks, man, I am famished, this isn't going to cut it, he says, ma'am, do you think that I could have a second piece of chicken? The lady looks at him and says, you know, I'm only supposed to give one per person, so. And then he's he's normally an unassuming man, quiet spoken generally. But this time he decided, you know what? I'm the governor. He decided to throw some weight around, pull some rank. And so he says, I'm sorry, but ma'am, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And she turns from the other person, and looks right at him, and says, Sir, do you know who I am? I'm the woman in charge of the chicken. <laughs> so please move along, mister. She was in charge, at least of the chicken. That's a silly story, but it, it gives us kind of a. Uh, it introduces us to, uh, to our topic this morning. We're going to talk about authority. Authority. Who has authority? Um, authority, obviously, in that scenario, even though he's the governor, he, was, he did not have authority over the chicken. It doesn't seem like the lady that would acquiesce. Authority. Uh, we're going to look at this. So if you're at Mark chapter 2, maybe there's a little header up there. Uh, maybe kind of gives you a little insight there. But the title of today's message is Son of Man, forgiver of sin the forgiver of sin and it really does come down to this question of authority who has the authority to do this and I'm going to do something that you should never do if you're doing a sequential sermon or you're going to tell a story I'm going to give you the ending so you're not surprised you can kind of settle in be emotionally prepared here is the ending of the sermon, here is the the actual crux of this: Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. There you go. write it down that 's the point of this story that 's the point of this narrative and we 're going to walk our way to that end, but that is going to be our topic, the, this idea of forgiveness, and, and honestly, it's one of the most important topics for us to talk about. Uh, forgiveness itself um, is, is such a, it's a unique thing to Christianity. It's been borrowed around, but, but forgiveness, the idea and the concept of, of forgiveness, how we understand it in the gospel, is unique. It's unique to Christianity, and one of the things that we understand as we read through the scriptures, and, and also as we just interact with each other. As humans, the greatest need for all humans is to be forgiven. That is our greatest need. Because we all have the starting point of being inadequate. We're sinners. We all have the same starting point. The difference between the population of earth and the population of the kingdom is forgiveness. That is the difference. The entire population of the kingdom, the population of heaven, are those who are forgiven. It's populated by forgiven people. And so it is one of the most important topics for us to deal with. Everyone is looking for forgiveness. Forgiveness for something. Maybe just general forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is is actually the essence of the hope of the gospel. If you look at Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, 38 and 39. We'll get it up there in a second. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything, or from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is the essence of the hope of the gospel, is this idea, this concept of forgiveness. What does it really mean? And, and, and honestly, we, we have to ask, is our forgiveness secure? Do we really have it? So it really depends on who's giving this forgiveness. So we're gonna go into Mark. Now, I love, I love teaching through narrative. I think, and I I mentioned it before when I was telling the introductory story, I think that we as, as human beings, and this it goes into every culture, I think every every group of people learn best through stories. Those of you who've been to college, been to university. You go through a lecture and you sit there and you have to take notes and sometimes it's difficult to remember and then you realize it's difficult to remember when you have an exam in front of you. But a story, you could sit down and if you've seen the same movie or read the same book, you, you both can go through a story pretty easily. Stories flow. We understand the world around us through those stories. Even micro stories. Things we learn as little kids. Little things that, you know, oh, uh, I heard that that, that my sister touched this thing and it was hot, so I'm not going to do it. That's a tiny little story. We, th- siblings learn from those little nuggets, right? They say that every, every smart man learns from experience, but a wise man learns from someone else's experience, right? We learn through stories. This is normal for us. And so as we walk through this, I love going through the nerves. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through this story, And we're going to walk through and As we walk, we're going to highlight some things that I think amplify the story that help us to understand, I think, the main point, the main reason why Mark has included this. Uh, In preparation for the sermon, every time I go to the Gospels to teach or to preach, even sometimes just to read, I always pull out my Harmony of the Gospels. Who who has a Harmony of the Gospels? Anybody? It is such a useful tool because it lines up and lays out all the Gospels together. So as the story is being told, you can see as you're going through all the different Gospels, just lays them out. So in opening up the harmony of the Gospels, we see that Mark is actually one of the primary texts for this this story. Luke also records this pretty extensively. Matthew has a little bit in there. John doesn't even mention it, but this is is an important story. It's important for us to understand. There's some very, very important principles for us to really lock down and to hide away, because it's going to help us to understand not just the rest of Mark, but the other Gospels, and actually just the gospel in general. And we're going to learn it through this story. So we're going to start in verse 1, the beginning. Hopefully that's been enough time for you to turn there. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Let's just walk together in it. And when he returned to Capernaum for some days, it was reported that he was at home. Capernaum. Capernaum who came for Jesus really like a second home. Even though he's called Jesus the Nazarene, this is where he spent a lot of time. This is where he identified as his place to go for a respite, for a rest, or just a place to feel at home. This happens to be the the area, the place where Peter's family's from. This is the same place where Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. We don't know if that's where they're staying. We don't know exactly where it is that they, they are, but wherever Jesus was, it says that he was at home. And it may have been the place that people recognized, yeah, that's where Jesus stays. He stays over here. And so he he goes back to Capernaum, which is just a little coastal town right on the lake. You know, it's one of the more important towns in the area, but definitely not a big city. But man, he could draw a crowd, this Jesus. And he'd been going around in Capernaum before, and he'd been preaching openly, and he'd been Healing other people to the point where he couldn't come out in public anymore to go and to do those things. And that was something that's that's been highlighted, the fact that that Jesus went to the crowds, right? The the big crowds. And he was a draw and people would come. Why would they come? You can yell it out, why would they come to see Jesus in the open crowd? He may have been teaching, but they came for the healing. And, and we can understand that, right? Word gets around. Hey, there's somebody who actually is healing people. Yeah, that's, that's something that would happen. That's a big draw. So people don't already come to him. But now, and that's why also when he would heal, he would say, don't tell anybody. Remember that? We already covered that in Mark. This idea that Jesus is kind of trying to, to, to pull back from that popularity I really appreciated last week talking about solitude, but as, as Jesus continues to go through his ministry, it's more and more and more difficult to actually get solitude. People know, know where he's at. People, he, they, it's, it's more and more difficult. So it says that he went there for, for some days, and then it was reported that he was at home. News flew. The Twitter of the day, right? Which is pro- probably the, uh, wherever the water was. They all all talked. Everybody knew. So they all came. Look at verse 2. It says that uh, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So it is jam-packed, probably completely full on the inside, pouring out outside. It wasn't like Jesus was selling out a stadium. Man, that house is full. Completely full, jam packed. Couldn't even get to the door. But here's what's interesting: it says that he was preaching the word to them. So, so in my sanctified imagination, imagine approaching the house, and you'd think that a big crowd like that—it's going to be loud. There's going to be clamoring. There's going to be moving around. But the thing is, is that Jesus was preaching the word. So there may have been, and, and this is just me trying to set the scene in my own mind for the story. There's a little bit of a calm and a quiet because people are trying to hear. People are outside trying to hear. What what is? he's saying what's going on in there so that's my own imagination you know but he's not like out on the water where his voice projects so there's this quiet odd quiet for such a big crowd right and they're coming to this to this place this this one house I don't know what the neighbors thought said oh no Jesus is home better park the donkey somewhere else we're never going to be able to get out of here verse 3 look at verse 3 Verse 3 says, and they came, bringing to him a a paralytic carried by four men. First of all, it says, and who came? They came. Just they. They came. Who knows if these guys were semi-locally famous after this story, but they came. Bringing to him, bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. So they bring him by. There's actually a lot to be said about that verse. Four Mary, four, four men carrying. I try to say "men" and "carry" too fast, and it came out "Mary." They four men carrying this man. So think about this: did these did these men go and say like, "Oh, Jesus is there, and it is packed, but we need to bring our friend." So they all got together. Was this a plan? Did they did they have this? okay? when Jesus comes back to town we're going to do this. So they heard the rumor and they brought him. Um, what, what was that like? But, but whatever that was, they, they, they had some, some sort of semblance of a plan. Because he's, the four of them are carrying him. All four of them have to be there. And they're all bringing him. Why are they bringing a paralytic man to Jesus? You tell me. For healing. Brought him for healing. So that means that those four men all had to have sort of the same mind. Yeah, we're going to bring him out. He's going to be healed. We don't know any of the backstory behind these guys. We know that they came expecting Jesus to do something. So right there, we can see that these guys have a measure of faith. Carried by four men. Verse 4. When they could not get near him because of the crowd... It says they removed the roof above him. And we'll get to that in a second. But, but think about this. Have you stopped to think about this idea? They bring this paralytic man. They had to be a slight spectacle. Four men carrying a man. It says on a pallet, so it may have been like a flat surface, right? You know, don't think hammock. Think something like, like a flat you know, piece of wood or something, right? It so says they came. They could not get near him because of the crowd. Okay. Think about this. The crowd is there. It is jam-packed. And here comes four men carrying another man. And what do you do as the crowd? Shh. We're listening. Quiet. How rude are these people? This guy is coming to be healed. Why can't they just get out of the way? Why can't they move? Someone should say, hey, this guy wants to get through and make, make some space, right? There's always some loud guy. He's like, hey, make some room. Nobody does that. Think about, you, you know that there's some kind of opposition there because it's like, well, we can't get through the door. Let's rip the roof off, okay? There's, there's a few steps in between. Man, I can't get through the door. I'm going to tear down part of this building so I can get in. So you know that there's something there. There's some sort of escalation. There's something happening, Right? The crowds. And so imagine this, and I want to want you to understand. These people were all there to hear Jesus. They wanted to hear Jesus. What do you think Jesus is preaching? We don't have it recorded, right? He doesn't, we don't have his sermon notes. what do you think he was preaching? Knowing Jesus, what is he preaching about? Louder, the kingdom, mercy, love, the love of the Father. These different things. They're hearing. They're hearing these things. Not now paralyzed man. We're listening to the We're listening to the story. We're listening to the message. We're listening to what Jesus has to tell us. You can wait till after. We don't know how long you've been paralyzed, but you can wait another hour, right? I don't know I don't know what that looked like or what that felt like. <sighs> But it felt like there was enough urgency for these guys to say, if this thing's going to happen, you know, as soon as Jesus comes out of that door, he's going to be swamped. There's no way that we can carry him through a crowd like that. We have to get this done now. This is the time. But imagine the crowd. Imagine being a part of the crowd and being like, no, I know you're in terrible need. And that he's the one that can heal you, but you can wait. You can hold on. So think, think about that just for a second. We'll get to the roof in a moment. But there might be another reason why there was that attitude. So in the time, there was this prevalent idea that if someone suffered greatly, had some sort of ailment, it was because of sin. Must have done something. John chapter 9. Turn with me or Beep, bop, boop, press buttons with me to John chapter 9. First three verses. Verse 1, chapter 9 of of, uh, the Gospel of John. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, so clearly the he, the man, is Jesus. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind Jesus answered, "It was not this man; it was not uh, this man's sin or his parents, but the works, but that the works of God might be displayed in him." So, think about this. We we are pretty familiar with the disciples. You could think they pro- someone thought, "I'm going to think of a very deep theological question to ask Jesus." I see a man suffering over here, and say, "Jesus, please tell us who sinned." He was born blind, so we know he didn't do it. Father or mother? And maybe in their minds, they're even thinking deep theological thoughts. Well, reasoning. Reasoning behind this, well, maybe it comes through the father, right? Because of Adam. But generally, people are just born, you know, with, with sin. So who, so the, the, the wheels are turning. They think themselves very thoughtful in this question. Or maybe they were just really maybe there's no arrogance behind it, but they're just really concerned, or just, like, Jesus, who, who would have sinned, right? We don't know what the idea is behind that, but whichever way, Jesus says, uh, neither. The reason that this man is blind is so that he could be healed today, essentially. So God could be glorified. So God could be glorified today. So, his, so God's power can be displayed. So this was a, this was a prevalent idea. Someone experiences this type of of ailment, right, someone's paralyzed like this, probably because of sin. So now put yourself back in the crowd and you look back and here's some paralyzed guy and you look back and say, oh, listen, can can you wait? Back in the mind, you're in that position because of something you did, so you can wait. Or maybe some people even said, like, I just don't know if Jesus heals those kind of ailments, so we're going to wait for this to be done. Then may look back at him and said, he's not worth letting through because of what he's done. We obviously don't have that aspect of it recorded, but that idea was probably there. Why should we let this man through? Bring that up because this now heightens this man and his friend's faith. There may have been no reason for Jesus to have healed him. Because maybe maybe he did something. Maybe he really did. And maybe this really did come from the Lord. But maybe he didn't. But either way, he would have been living his life as a paralyzed man with that thought. That thought in the back of his head. Maybe, maybe he thought, what did I do? Was it that? Was it that thing? I mean, it was probably that thing, if it was anything. Thinking about, We don't know how long he was paralyzed, he was born this way, if he'd been like that for a year, ten years, we don't know. For that time, that mentality. Can you imagine that, thinking that? What did I do? Or maybe he knew exactly what he did. I know it's because of that. Imagine thinking about that all the time, or at least enough to make it a marked part of your day. To think about that was he sorry? Was he angry? It would seem as though he he probably had a penitent heart, otherwise, we wouldn't have seen him come out to see Jesus. But imagine that. Imagine there's this opportunity. Here comes Jesus. Maybe, maybe, maybe he would heal me. I don't deserve it. Maybe he's thinking, I I don't know if he, he, I mean, he probably knows what I did. They're going to go anyway. Talks to his friends. We're going to do this. Or maybe his friends said, you know what? Jesus will heal you. He'll do it. He's he's healed other people. He'll heal you. He will. So imagine that other dynamic. Now we've got this this really a moralistic kind of conundrum for them. Well, do I deserve it? Who's Jesus healing? Do you know backstories on who's Jesus healing? What what are their situations like? What, What is this? But either way, however that all spun out, his friends said, no, we're going to take you. We're going to take you and they're going to do it. And as they got there, and who knows, maybe they got there and they're listening and they're hearing and they're hearing Jesus' words. Maybe they heard Jesus' words before. They're even more just like, no, this is it. Jesus, Jesus will heal you. He talks about mercy. He talks about grace. He talks about love. He talks about the kingdom. He talks about bringing people. No, he'll heal you. Enough to where his friends say, we're doing this. So <laughs> I don't know whose idea it was. In my sanctified imagination, it's his friends, and the whole time the parallel guys. I know, oh Please, can we not? Can you can you not tear apart this house and lower me down, please? This is embarrassing enough, right? But whatever that looks like, they did. So the houses at the time were built in such a way that they would have like a like a skeletal type structure with like like uh, beams or most likely like just kind of like wooden poles or something, and then they would they would build it up, and then the roof part they would they would um, mud it up the inside and put the stuff in there but they would actually use like thatching almost there's like sticks and stuff and they would kind of pack that in there mud that up on top and they would lay tile down on top it became a really functional type of roof for them it was really if it was really hot which it probably was a bit of the time in the evening they would go up top and sleep because it was so stuffy in the house it was was a space they used they normally have like a ladder or something going up there and I don't know how they got this guy up there but they did and they get up there, and who knows? It could have been real dramatic. They're going up there, and it's like, what are you guys doing up there? And then, all of a sudden, they say, well, here, here we go. They start tearing the roof apart. Someone starts coming up there, and I'm, again, in my sanctified imagination, and one of the guys kicks down the ladder. No, we're going to do this, and they're ripping stuff out. I don't know how dramatic it was, but man, it's a cool story in my head. And they start to dig that up. The question is, to me, always, when I think about this, is did Jesus stop like, he's preaching, and very clearly, like, little things start falling. I also don't know how they did it in the house, like, figuring out someone's outside going, two feet more over left, because they, they said they lowered him right in front of Jesus, so there's some engineering going on. Well, he an engineering brain, you can kind of think that out, like, how would they figure that out? Uh, Maybe they scoped it out before. Maybe this was a plan. Also, where in the world are they getting tools, and where are they getting ropes to do this thing? Did they go, all right, guys, what do we have? Someone's like, I brought a rope. I brought some masonry tools. Let's put it together. Let's tear up the roof. I don't know what that looked like. Did they run home and grab stuff? I don't know. But these guys start tearing apart the roof. Whose house is this? No one cares. They are tearing the roof apart. Okay? Stuff starts falling in. they're looking up. Now think about this. They're going to lower them down on a flat pallet, right? OK? How big does that have to be? Maybe four by six. That's a huge hole in the roof, right through the ceiling. Have we thought about this story deeply enough to think of all the ramifications of who's going to pay for this? And then afterwards, thanks, Jesus. We know you stay here. You've got a sun, you know, what do they call it? Skylight? You've got a skylight now. All those things apparently got worked out because it's not mentioned. No one cares, apparently. But they're ripping this stuff up. Imagine the faith. At what point do you go, this is a bad idea? <laughs> Can you see what we're doing? Can you believe this? So imagine this faith. And I, and I mention all the stuff and the enduring things because imagine all the steps. At what step do you go? I, don't, I just don't even know if Jesus is going to do this. Let's just find him after. But no, they go and they do it. So this faith, when Jesus sees and he says that he, <laughs> let's go back to our, our passage here. Actual scripture, not a story that I'm telling here. But it says they removed the roof above him in the middle of verse four. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed On which the paralytic lay, lowered it down. Okay, Jesus saw their faith. He felt their faith falling on his head for a minute, couple minutes beforehand, but he saw their faith. So imagine this: imagine all that backstory of this man who's laying there for for potentially years, paralyzed. What did I do? I did that I know that's why maybe that's why slowly being lowered down until he's face to face with Jesus he looks at Jesus imagine all the thoughts all the thoughts going is he going to heal me is it gonna be someone's going to be angry someone's, ang- someone's already, already angry that we're doing this temptation to say pull me up pull me up abort I don't want to be here. But he's there and he's looking at Jesus and Jesus looks at this man, okay? I'm assuming immediately you could figure out what's wrong with this guy. He can't move. Don't know if he's quadriplegic, you know, neck, shoulders down. We don't know, but it was enough to where some guys had to carry him on a pallet. So I'm assuming it's it's extensive and he's laying there and he's looking at Jesus and what does Jesus say? What does he say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Whoa. Sins are forgiven? All that time, thinking, wondering, all that stuff. He looked like he needed physical help. And he did. But his sins being forgiven... I don't know that he was prepared for that. Your sins are forgiven. <clears throat> now, some of the scribes, there's always the turning point in the stories with Jesus. <clears throat> now, the Pharisees, or now the scribes, we find out that the scribes were there. The scribes were there. They're sitting, it says they were sitting there amongst them. So they were on the inside, they had prime seats. They're in there. It says, now some scribes are sitting questioning in their hearts. They don't even say it out loud. Questioning in their hearts. As soon as they hear that, your sins are forgiven. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive but God alone? Who can forgive sins? Only God can. So scribes, not just someone who writes, that is part of their profession, is the actual writing, but they're also called the experts in the law. Okay, these guys were practicing uh, you know, recitation, they were writing, they were, they were the experts. Right? These are the guys, when the Magi show up and say, hey, here there's a king of the Jews being born. Hey, scribes, where is it? Ba-da-da-da-da, looking around, talking a second. It's like, oh yeah, it's in Bethlehem. And notice they didn't go they were experts in the law. You could ask them a question, they could look through and they could find it. That was their job. That was what they did. Okay, they were the scholars of the age. So when you hear, or when they hear that, sins are forgiven. A, only God can do that. Most likely brought up a couple of verses right in their heads. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. Let's look at that. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to God. Look at that first one. He who justifies the wicked. Any man who looks at the wicked and justifies them, abomination. Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 25. This is God speaking to Isaiah. I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. So here's the scenario. Man is it's an abomination for man to do that. God is the one that does that. Here's the thing. They say that in their hearts. Were they right? Were they right? They were right. That's 100% correct. But instead of going, maybe this guy's something special, they go, ah, blasphemer. Nope. Their conclusion was blasphemy. Immediately. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Look at verse 8. It says, and immediately, there's our markism immediately, immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioned within themselves, he just perceived the question. Some people are like, he's reading their minds. He's reading their hearts. I don't know, it's probably pretty plain on their face. Jesus is a pretty perceptive guy, right? Maybe put all that together. But yeah, I do think there was definitely something in their hearts that Jesus was understanding. Perhaps the similar thing that he did when he saw this paralytic man. He looked at the man and saw his heart. Saw the repentance. Saw the man who's contrite over his sin. Verse eight, immediately Jesus perceiving within his spirit, That they question this. Why why do you question these things in your hearts? Maybe it scared them a little bit. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or rise up, take your bed, and walk? Now, actually, I think the scribes liked this question. Like, oh, very interesting. Which is easier? Guys, let's confer. Which, Which do you think is easier? Physical healing or the uh, the forgiveness? What do you think? What do you think, guys? I, I just imagine these guys always liked those kind of questions. That's what they were for. That's what they did. Oh, it's a great question, Jesus. Let's uh, let's take let's let's think about this. Which which is it? Here's the answer. They're both impossible. Both absolutely impossible. Which is easier? I mean, neither is easier. They're both impossible for any human being to do, right? Which is easier? And for them, if we go back to the cultural understanding concerning sin and the ramifications of sin and these types of ailments, they probably go in their mind, well it's physically more difficult for that. So maybe it is easier for Jesus just to say, you're forgiven. It's just words. No answer. Jesus didn't even give them a chance to answer. But notice how he says that to the scribes first. Paralytic guy's hanging in the middle of the room right here. Which is easier, guys? You tell me. The paralytic man, I don't know if he's torn. Like, do they have to pick which one? His friends are up top going, This guy's heavy. Make up your mind. What are we doing? Which is easier? Verse 10. It says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It says, Then he said to the paralytic man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Which is easier? In their minds, it probably was tied up altogether. So think about this. Why was he paralyzed? Was it because of sin? Didn't matter. Jesus took care of it. Both. And so the proof of his authority over sin was the healing. Now, now we have to think about this for a second. First of all, that's amazing. Right? That would have been an amazing sight. And a big relief to the guys holding him up. Now he can walk. The, the thing here is Jesus says, which is easier? I'll do both. They're connected. So we could, we could, we could spend time thinking, okay, did, did he really sin? Is it because something we did? And then we could sit like the scribes and say, well, I don't know. We could go through the scripture and we can kind of look and kind of figure something out here. I think most of us would come to the thing to say, man, being paralyzed? What in the world did that guy do? If he sinned, and that was the result, goodness gracious, what did he do? Because for us, it seems over the top. So a of us have come to the conclusion, no, it's, it's, it's just, you know, the natural stuff. That's why he's paralyzed. God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't let someone just be paralyzed because of something they did. Well, Think about it for a second. What's the alternative? Why, why do any of us get sick? Why are there ailments in this world? Why? World. It's a fallen world. So we, are, we get sick. We suffer ailments and disasters. Why? Why? Because of someone else's choice that they made a long time ago that we had nothing to do with, and yet we suffer. Right? So I don't know, six of one half dozen of the other. Did he sin? Did this man did this man's father sin or his mother sin? It's the fall. It's Adam and Eve. It was someone's sin. It was. And for us to spend time going back and forth about it, about, well, no, no, it couldn't have been his man's sin, we're missing the point. The point is yes, through one man's sin, sickness, death entered the world. Absolutely because of somebody's sin, this guy was suffering. Whether it was his or his parents or someone, it doesn't matter. It all came from the same source. So when he says, which is easier, he's really cutting through to the core of this. See, all these people, the the, the crowds, the big crowds that would come, right, want to be healed. They sought relief from the effects of sin. They sought relief from what sin wrought, what came from sin. They wanted relief Bless you. They wanted relief. So imagine these crowds, the smaller crowd, but still crowded around the house, keeping out somebody to be healed, hearing a message about the gospel. They're they're keeping someone from that relief, trying to hear the eternal gospel it's very interesting what Jesus has is this this ability to say you know what it's not just this ailment you have right now can you imagine if you were sick and dying and Jesus healed you and then you go a few more years and then you get sick again You're like well there we go Right, five years later Jesus is gone and well guess I'm getting sick again the whole idea is all these people getting healed they would get sick and they would die later Right? Does Jesus heal everybody? Did he heal everybody? Everybody's shaking their heads. Where does it say he didn't heal everybody? Yeah, there's some place where he came and he's like, no, we're not, we're not going to spend time here. We're not going to do those things here. Or, I mean, if he had taken care of all the sick and needy people then in Acts, there wouldn't have been anybody for the apostles to heal. They would have all been healed already. <clears throat> so he didn't heal everybody. So, so does, does he heal? I, I say this because there's so many of us that we, we pray for healing. Why would God not want to heal us? It's because it's the same Jesus that looked at a paralyzed man and the first thing he says to him is like, don't worry, I'm going to heal you but your sins are forgiven. No, he just says your sins are forgiven. You know why? He looked at the paralyzed man, saw arms and legs that didn't work, saw a person that couldn't move, that had to be carried, that had to be taken care of, and he says, you know what your your problem is? Your problem is your sin. That's your problem. I'm going to take care of that first. What was the real problem? The real problem was not that he couldn't use his arms and legs. The real problem was, and Jesus saw it immediately, this man... Needs healing of the heart. This man needs to be freed from his sin. This man needs forgiveness. He says, you know what? So that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to do this, I'm going to do that and I'm going to heal you. Now no one can say that. Because he could have forgiven his sin and sent him home paralyzed. And the man would have been better for it. Right? Worth the trip like we said, how many, how long did he sit there thinking about this concept, this idea? What did I do? Oh, that thing I did? To be given that freedom would have been amazing, even if he hadn't have been healed. But Jesus says, so that you know I have that authority, I'm going to heal you too. Amazing. Jesus told him, pick up your stuff and go home. And he did. And here's the, here's the funny thing. It says he picked it up and he walked out and he went home. What the crowds do after he was healed? They got out of his way. <laughs> that place is jam packed, and then he's healed and they're like, "Oh, oh, come, come on, through, going out, found room for him to get out." Let's go back. It's an amazing story, amazing healing. Amazing things to think through. Let's look at one key phrase here. Look back up at verse ten. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want to focus in on that Son of Man. When we hear Son of Man, what do we think of? We'll we'll get there. We're getting there in a second the son of man who is the son of man it's a title and most of us go like oh that's that's a messianic title His son of man right we go back to ezekiel and say oh, look at all these things talk about the son of man this is the messiah Move forward to see those different instances that's jesus favorite term for himself son of man son of man you know what that means it was not a messianic term at the time you know what it meant son of a man it's just a man you're just a guy you're a man the term means a little bit more. Whenever you hear son of something, so in the Old Testament, it doesn't use the word antichrist, but it uses the son of perdition. The meaning is, when someone is the son of something, they are the total and complete embodiment of that thing. When you look at the record of the kings, the kings of Judah, they'll identify the good kings. There's seven, eight-ish good kings, and every time it says, this king, son of David, would you skip over their dad? Yes, we do, because the point is, this one is in the embodiment of David. He is the fullness of David living right there as a righteous king. And so we get to this son of man. Well, the other, one of the other messianicers, son of God, right? Centurion, Jesus dying on the cross. Truly this man was the son of God. He is the embodiment of Godhood right here. Son of God. So when Jesus says son of man, what he's saying is, I'm a man. I'm a man. Son of man. It's a humbling term. It was a way for Jesus to identify himself, and it was his favorite phrase to use for himself, Didn't call himself Christ or Messiah. Throughout Mark, he uses this. This is what's amazing. Mark Chapter eight thirty one, in chapter nine, and chapter ten, a couple different places, chapter fourteen, he says son of man, and he uses it in the context of him going and suffering and dying as the son of man. It was a lowly term. It was only after the resurrection, looking back, we say that is a glorious term. What's interesting is Jesus also used it as a glorious term. There are a couple times in Act, or a few different times in Mark, where he says in chapter eight, chapter thirteen, chapter fourteen, where he uses that to say "Son of Man in glory." And it flips. Now it's not a humbling term. Now it's a a term of glorification. Son of Man. There's a couple places where this is talked about. Genesis three fifteen. We go all the way to the very beginning. Genesis 3, verse 15, we get the first mention of this concept. This is in the curses being delivered. Ah, God is so good to always give hope whenever he gives a curse. It's amazing. Anyway, verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Notice that there, offspring. Her offspring. This is the man. And we know this is what they understood because in the very next story, it says, and she had a child named Cain. And what does she say? God has given to me a man. That was the idea. It was gonna be a man. A person was gonna do this thing. Now, Carlos, now we'll go to Daniel chapter seven. Is the other mention. Daniel chapter 7, we have the other mention of the Son of Man. Verse 13, vision given to Daniel it said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Notice what happens in verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This son of man, this promised son of man would come humbly and then be glorified. Here Jesus says, so that you know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. We'll just go ahead and heal this guy. Just so that you know. I don't know, and I would venture, that the scribes were pretty confused at this. Son of man. What, what are we talking about? Son of man. Because their understanding would be just normal, just son of some guy, or someone being glorified, so how in the world this guy in the house healing a paralytic is son of, I don't understand that, if they even took it that far. But here's the beautiful thing. Okay? 1 Corinthians, Paul helps us out. Paul helps us out. First, by confusing us oftentimes, and then he helps us out a little later. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, great passage talking about the resurrection. We look at verse 20, and we see this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, who's that? Say it louder. Adam. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. One man came death, by another man came the resurrection. Next verse. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. See Jesus goes and actually destroys every other authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Last enemy to be destroyed is death. So think on this. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. We talked about this in the year of biblical literacy. Made in the image of God to be God's representatives, to rule. They were told to have dominion over the earth. Dominion. What do we read in Daniel? Son of Man is to have dominion. This was a role for man. But what did mankind do? Adam and Eve fell, never fulfilling that. Jesus, in being the Son of Man, fulfills the role of Adam like Adam couldn't. He does what Adam failed to do. And as the Son of Man, he has that authority. The authority that probably should have been Adam's but is not Jesus. He comes and he fulfills that role as the Son of Man. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the salvation of of humankind. This is the salvation of creation. Jesus takes up that role. As the Son of Man, he's the one that went to the Ancient of Days and is given dominion. Of course, that's not all that Jesus is, but he takes on that role. He is the Son of Man. So when he says that, they don't get it. They don't understand the fullness of what he's talking about. They don't get it. Jesus is still living his life, his ministry with that mystery. The enemy doesn't know his plan. When he heals, he'll go back out of the limelight because there will come a day where it will all be fulfilled. Paul also writes, the enemy, <clears throat> had they known what would have happened, they would not have killed the king of glory If they really knew what the whole plan was, they wouldn't have done it. It It's through his death, through his resurrection, he takes up that role as the son of man and then offers it to us. He offers us forgiveness because of his authority as the son of man, as the representative of mankind. He takes on that role for us and then we bear the benefit. We then live in a kingdom under his dominion. We then live as his servants. We bear the benefit of having as our head the Son of Man. And we get to live in glory. Heavenly Father, I pray that Lord, as we see those around us, see people suffering, see people live in their lives, just normal lives. I pray that you'd give us eyes like Jesus to see their real need. Lord, that when we look at others and we see what's going on in their lives, and maybe we have an answer for that, a particular situation, Lord, I pray that we would look and see them as you see them, with the real answer, which is your sins can be forgiven. Lord, I pray that we would be those who are your hands, your feet. Lord, I pray that we would go and seek out the lost as you've called us to do, Lord, that we would offer this as you lead us to those whom you lead us to. So just like Jesus, we can say, today God is glorified in what he's doing in you. God, I pray that you would make us these type of people, pray that we would be excited about the fact that we serve the son of man we serve the son of God Lord I pray that we would live our lives this way it's no longer a mystery it's no longer something hidden it is something that has been opened up Lord I pray that we would offer it to all that we see all that we come in contact with all that we when we meet God that we would be so enamored with you the Son of Man, that we would offer that forgiveness that we have freely to those around us. Lord, I pray as we go from here, Lord, we would encourage each other, love each other, care for one another, pray for one another. Maybe some of us do need healing and just to recognize that just like with Paul, Paul would ask for healing but God said, no, it's better for you to experience this so that your eyes are on me and for us to say, glory be to God because I have ultimate healing and forgiveness in the Son of Man. Lord, we pray these things in the powerful, powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.